Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I said we'd talk about games. When I was a kid, one of my favorite games was hide-and-seek. And I think if you were a psychologist, you could create an interesting psychological study examining the, the way that people play hide-and-seek. Here's the question that seems important to me. What do you prefer? Do you prefer to hide or do you prefer to seek? Would you rather be the person who has to conceal themselves and not be found? Or would you rather be the person whose job it is to, to look around and find everyone who's hidden? Depending on how hide-and-seek has gone for you, it may influence your answers. If you're one of those people who was always it and could never find the hidden people, you probably would not want to be in the hot seat again, and vice versa. For me, personally, I always loved hiding better. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to kind of proactively look for places that would be good to hide in, so that at the drop of a dime, I would already have in mind some places of concealment always dreamed of having a house with secret passages and hidden rooms and that sort of thing. And so just the idea of having a hiding place I always found really compelling. It always seemed natural to me so that, you know, as a kid, and certainly now, if you were to ask, would you rather be searching people out who are hidden or be one of the hiders yourself? I'd much rather be one of the hiders. And no, you wouldn't be able to find me. I'm just too good. It's interesting, when you go back in human history, the way the Bible portrays the, the crisis of humanity early on in Genesis, one of the first things human beings do is hide themselves. In Genesis 3.8, immediately after the fall, immediately after Adam and Eve have their first consciousness of knowledge of good and evil, they first awaken to their shame when God comes in to the, their presence. When, when they face the prospect of having to come in the presence of God, they hide themselves, we learn in Genesis 3a. It's a very human thing to do. There's probably nothing more human that we do since the fall than hide ourselves. Hide ourselves from one another, certainly, but hide ourselves from God as well. All of us in our own way are looking for those hiding places places where we could stash ourselves and never be found, where we could place our secret selves and no one would ever discover what we truly are, where we could elude being discovered, not just by one another, but by God himself. Paul is addressing exactly this impulse in speaking to his audience in Romans 2, this desire to hide We'll turn anything into a hiding place, ironically, even the law of God. The people that Paul is speaking to have taken the law of God revealed in the Old Testament. They've turned it into a hiding place, a place where they tell themselves that they can get away from God, that they can escape the judgment of God, that they don't need to worry Because when those lightning bolts of judgment start raining down, they won't find us because we'll be hidden. And Paul says, 
You need a reality check because you can't hide behind the law. If you feel confident in the face of judgment, if you're not worried about having to answer for yourself because you think you have an advantage because of the law, then you're really fooling yourself about what the law is. The law is not given to us as a hiding place to escape wrath. In fact, the law is probably the worst place you could choose to hide. Paul says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. A Jewish audience hearing these words of Paul, lumping us all in together, Jew and Gentile alike in this way, not making the kinds of distinctions that that we usually make. You can understand why they might have pushed back a little bit. They might not have been open to what Paul was saying, because as Jews, they enjoyed certain benefits that the Gentiles did not possess. They had the law. They had the revelation of God in the Old Testament. They had a culture, a society that was built around that. They looked around them, the rest of the world, and they saw idolatry, licentiousness. They saw exactly the stuff that Paul was talking about in Romans 1. And all of that sin out there was a testament to how bad those societies were. But we're not like that. We're not like that. Ours is a culture based on the foundation of God's word. We have this revelation from God. We have this law. In fact, the law reveals much more about God, about his character, about his holiness. We have much more knowledge about who the true God is than they do. In a sense, we can't be lumped together because we started off in a different place than they did. The argument we talked about earlier, the argument from birth. You can't mix me in with the godless Gentiles because I was born different than they were. I wasn't born like them. I was born into the congregation of the Lord. I have to be judged by a different standard. You can appreciate the logic of that. And Paul doesn't disagree. Paul doesn't disagree that those who have received the law must be judged by a different standard. He just thinks that's a worse thing to realize, not a better thing. It's not an advantage to be judged by the law. It doesn't make you less culpable. It makes you more culpable. Because the point, he says, is not having the law. The point is not to say, I'm okay because in my church, we have the law. They read it out in the synagogue every Sabbath day. They open up the scrolls and we hear the very word of God. I don't need to worry. He says, hearing the word isn't enough. That's insufficient. Doing it is what makes you righteous. You can't judge yourself or your culture's righteousness based on what it knows or even what it reveres. You can only judge it on what it does. You're only righteous if you do what is righteous, he says. And you can see this 
when you look at the way that the unrighteous operate, you look at the way that Gentiles operate, you'll see that what I'm saying is true. Even people who don't have the law operate as if they do. It says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the Gentiles, they don't have the Mosaic law. They don't have the law that was given to the people of Israel, but they are made in God's image. They are human beings, and therefore they're made in the image of God, and therefore they have inscribed on their hearts a law. Remember in Romans 1, 19 and 20, Paul makes the point that there's a revelation of God in all creation. We all benefit from the revelation of God, not just Jews, but everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. All human beings are together in that. So that even those who don't possess the law, even those who don't have God's special revelation of himself, still have this operation of conscience inside them that should be recognizable to us. They still have this sense of right and wrong, and they struggle sometimes. It's possible, he says, for them not to have the law, but, but in a weird way to keep it because of conscience. Even though they never had a prophet who came down off of a mountain with pillars inscribed, tablets inscribed by the finger of God saying, thou shalt not kill. Despite that, they still agonize over their brutality. They still sometimes kill And then their consciences condemn themselves for it. So that even without the law, you can see in all human beings this operation of conscience. This idea that our actions may or may not be justified in light of a higher code, a higher reality. When you see the inner struggle of conscience, Paul says, you should recognize that and see that there's something going on there that teaches you something about what the law does, about what the purpose of the law is. Even though they do not hear the law, even so, by a natural impulse, he says, they sometimes do it. So the point that he's making here isn't that even without the law, a Gentile, in theory, could still be perfectly righteous and keep the law, even though he doesn't have it. The point that he's making is actually the inverse of that which is even with the law, no one who possesses the law will be able to perfectly keep it and be righteous. So we are all together in that unrighteousness, in that imperfection. Having the law doesn't solve the problem. Being able to point to the truth doesn't make you righteous because you still have to do what is right. And if you do not perfectly keep the law, then you are not righteous. And what the law provides for you is not a defense or an excuse or a hiding place. It's more like an indictment. Because you are different than the Gentile, Paul says. In this sense, you have guilty knowledge. You know more. You know better, let's say. And yet, 
you do the same things. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous. It is the doers of the law who are righteous. And this, Paul says, is if it's just common sense. You should know this. You should realize that this is why God has given you the law. It is not uh, a defense against condemnation. It exacerbates the condemnation. All my life, I've been searching for hiding places, looking for good hiding places. When I was a kid, I found one of the best hiding places. I still lived in Louisiana. My parents had built a house and had done that thing that you do as you're building the house where you, you turn out you've got more house than money. And so the building stops at a certain point. So we lived in a house that, that was rich in symbolism that I didn't appreciate because we had a, a grand staircase that went up into an unfinished attic above the house. So it looked really impressive, but if you went up the stairs, it was this vast, unfinished cavern. There was a little part with some plywood down, and, and we turned that into an office uh, for myself and my brother because we started a, a detective agency. And so that's where we had our office hours, clients. We, we had a sign. Clients w- would, could find us and come knock on the door, and we'd let them into the attic, but it didn't actually drive business very well. But um, we had to find other things to do, so we played a lot of hide-and-seek. Turns out, behind this staircase, there was this whole other section of the attic that didn't have the plywood down. But if you would run across the joists and, and avoid the insulation, that if it got on your skin, it would eat your flesh, you could get behind the staircase, and no one would ever find you back there in the darkness. So when we played hide-and-seek, that was the place I always went. I'd go up the stairs into the attic, then I'd walk in the joists around to the back of the stairs, and in the darkness, I would crouch low and wait for victory. Because eventually, everyone would give up, and I would be declared the winner. All I had to do was wait it out. The problem is, this was rural Louisiana, and the unfinished attic had no air conditioning, obviously. And so it might be 100 degrees up there, hundred and it felt like 150,000% humidity. So a lot of sweating was involved. So I'd crouch on the joists, trying to avoid the insulation, and almost immediately beads of sweat would be sort of pouring out of me. And it could be grueling and agonizing. Right? It was like standing in a, in a hot sauna or crouching in a hot sauna, and you had to wait and wait and wait and wait. It was hard to endure, but I knew that if I held on long enough, if I, if I was willing to sweat, eventually I would win. It would be inconvenient. I wouldn't be able to move freely, but as long as I could put in the effort, I would get the reward. Hiding behind the law is like this because it's not easy. There's stuff you can't do, Right? If, if you're hiding behind the law, you have to at least put on a show of righteousness. You have to at least look good. You have to look as if you'd make a good leader in the church. Right? So you can't do terrible things. The only terrible things you can do are the ones that can easily be concealed. So a lot of the good things in life, at least the things we perceive as good, are denied to you. But you're playing a longer game. You're trying to win in the end. You've got judgment on the mind. And so, sure, you'll sweat it out. You'll sweat it out because you're trying to keep the law, because you're at least trying to keep the semblance of righteousness. There's things you will deny yourself. And it'll feel good. 
even though it hurts, even though you're sweating beads of sweat and you are uncomfortable, when you think about people who are down in the air conditioning uh, being easily found because they're not hidden very well, you will, I don't know, feel satisfaction that you weren't so easily fooled, that you're willing to suffer to get what you wanted. Hiding behind the law that way, hiding behind self-righteousness can actually become a point of pride or satisfaction to us because we're conscious of the fact that we are enduring things other people aren't willing to endure. We're going without things other people couldn't live without. And if that's not what makes you a better person, I don't know what does. And so ironically, a, a kind of spiritual pride can grow up in this this law-keeping environment. We can be congratulating ourselves that we're using the law in this way, but there is a fatal flaw in, in seeking righteousness through the law, a fatal flaw. If you call yourself a Jew, Paul says, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, all this good stuff. If you're so convinced that these things are true of you, you're hiding behind the law. These are the characteristics of the self-righteous. Those who rightly see the law as an embodiment of knowledge and truth, have mistakenly confused, come to rely on the law, even, for their salvation. The goodness of the law is real. And in the law, God has revealed himself. But if you go back and you look at the law, the Ten Commandments, they're the heart of the law, the command to love one another and to love God, even the minutiae, of the law that governed Israel, you can see a holiness revealed there, and it is good. It is good. It does truly embody knowledge and truth. Those who boast in God and not themselves, those who know his will, those who approve of what is excellent because they've learned to recognize excellence from God's word, these are all good things as far as they go. They just don't go far enough. And oftentimes, these very qualities lead us to self-righteousness. Look at the language that he uses to describe these people. They are guides to the blind. They see themselves as light to those who are in darkness. They are surrounded by fools, but it's okay because they are instructors of the foolish. When they look at the Gentile world, they look at the world out there, confused and and embroiled in sin, they're they're like children. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even understand, but that's okay because we are like teachers. We could civilize them. We could educate them. We could tell them a thing or two about how to live righteously in the eyes of God because we are superior to them. That's the feeling, and it's a feeling I hope you can sympathize with, because I suspect we've all felt it in one way or another, that sense of superiority to others. Those people, 
The Jews might have looked out at the Gentiles, certainly the Romans, and thought those people may rule over us politically. They have the power in our society, but culturally, artistically, spiritually, certainly, there's so much that they could learn from us. We are so much more advanced than they are, even though they have all the power. We guilty ourselves of thinking this way. I think oftentimes in the broad world of evangelical Christianity, it's easy to succumb to this way of thinking about the world. You look at the world out there, outside the walls of the church, and you see its sinfulness, which Paul has already pointed out. You say to yourself, there is so much, so much that we have that they could really benefit from. There's so much we have to teach them We are so much more advanced and superior than they are. They may have the power. They may rule over our society, but we have the truth. I think you see this, I hate to say it, even in our Reformed enclaves. You study a little bit of theology. One of the uh, sins to guard against And having that knowledge is the judgment that comes along with it. How you start to see people who don't have the knowledge, who don't even want the knowledge, don't even recognize that you should live for the thought of reading the dead Puritans. And if you're not doing that, then then how can you claim to love God? So much to learn from us. We have so much to teach them. So many good gifts under the the Christmas tree that God has erected for us. And we just, just should hand them out or better wait for them to come and ask, and then we will give them. There's just one problem with that. One problem. Like, like sometimes these claims are true as far as they go, but they also reveal the heart of the one who, who embraces them. I'm not saying there is no advantage. Just like Paul is not saying there is no advantage in the law, no goodness in the law. Of course there is. I'm not saying there's no goodness in having been born into a Christian community, no goodness in having inherited a a rich tradition of Christian faith. Of course there is. But it's one of those good things that can easily be twisted, easily disordered, to actually become a hiding place, to conceal from us our true need. Then, Paul writes, you who teach others, do not teach yourself, You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say, you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, but do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Problem is, having the law doesn't lower the bar. It raises the bar. It raises the bar. The Gentiles sin, but they sin in relative ignorance. We've seen in Romans 1, they are without excuse. That ignorance is not an excuse for their sin. But there is a difference between the transgressions of Romans 1 and the transgression of Romans 2. Where the sins of Romans 1 are sins sinned in ignorance, Romans 2 addresses a sin that possesses knowledge. You sin with knowledge. You have the law, 
but you still break it. You glory in teaching it, but you don't actually live it. You don't actually keep it. You know better, and you act as if knowing better will excuse the fact that you don't do better, but it won't. In fact, it makes things worse, because not only are you breaking the law that you boast in, but you're bringing the God who gave you that law into disrepute. He says, it is because of you that God is blasphemed in the world. It's because of your behavior. It is because of your self-righteousness. It's because of this, this empty boasting that the gospel is laughed at, that God is taken lightly. It is because of those things. You've done much worse than sin and ignorance. You've sinned with knowledge, and then you've dragged the law that gave you that knowledge through the mud which is just a fancy way of saying that the place that you're hiding, the the thing that you're hiding behind has a giant target written on it. The law wasn't given as a defense against condemnation. The law is like the the beacon that is meant to, to demonstrate just how condemned you truly are. The law is the worst place for sinners to hide because it is the law that strips away every hiding place? Where do you run to when your hiding place is exposed? Where do you run to when it turns out there's nowhere to hide? You think you've found a place where no one can find you, and then suddenly the light shines in the darkness, and you're not concealed at all. Where do you go? Where do you run? The answer is that since Jesus kept the law, we can come out of hiding. The gospel doesn't give us a better hiding place, a true hiding place. The gospel brings an end to the need to hide. It is because of grace that Adam and Eve do not need to conceal themselves from God despite their sin. Because even in their sin, they can stand in the presence of God if if they are cleansed in the blood of Christ. You see this clearly if you look at what Paul writes in Galatians 3. He talks in Galatians 3 about this same idea of of the significance of the law. But instead of thinking of it in terms of the people who have the law and the people who don't have the law, now he's looking at it as a timeline. It's like the time of the law and then what came after the time of the law. It gives us a way of seeing what the law is really about. In Galatians 3, starting in verse 23, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The Jews that are being addressed in Romans 2 believe that because their society has received the law, their status has changed in relation to all the other human beings. We're not like them. Our status is different now. Paul says, That's true, but not in the way that you think. 
Because you had the law, the standard for you is raised. But ironically, your sin has only increased. The purpose of the law, as Paul reveals himself later in Romans 5, is actually to increase the sense of offense. In Romans 5.20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What he means is, not that, that God gave the law so that people would be more sinful, but rather, with the standard of the law revealed, we could see how much more sinful we are. If you're relying on your conscience to condemn or excuse you, turns out, for most of us, we get a pass. Our consciences tend to be pretty uh, hard when it comes to condemning ourselves. Most of us don't have a problem seeing the extenuating circumstances and imagine, probably, yes, you shouldn't kill, but you know, sometimes you have to, and in my case, there was just really no other option. I think I'm probably good. We can rationalize that. What the law does is takes away that ability to excuse ourselves so lightly. What God does in the law is show us a standard against which we can measure our own actions and see how far short we have fallen. So the law is a kind of custodian, a guardian, a a, a prison keeper, right? The law is bringing you under condemnation. It's, It's kind of fencing you in. It's showing you how bad you are. But once justification by faith in Christ is revealed, we no longer need the law to do that for us. But the purpose of the law is to bring us to the cross. The reason that the law is as harsh as it is, is to illustrate how bad the problem of sin really is. Once you see it, you realize just being good will never be enough. You need a better answer than that. And that better answer is what comes to us in Christ. The law came in to increase the trespass, but, Paul adds, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So it's true, our status really has changed. Our status has changed, but it hasn't changed in the way that they think. It's not that because the Jews have received the law, they're now better than everyone else. Rather, what's happened here is something else, a change in status. Because we are in Christ, we have become one. And the distinctions which used to divide us no longer do. It's not that they've gone away entirely. Paul's not saying, no, no, from now on, don't call yourself a Jew, and you, you stop calling yourself a Gentile, because you're not anymore. It's not that, that the, the historical realities have vanished. Rather, it's that all of that difference has been united in Christ. All of that diversity has, in Christ, become a unity. In the same way that in the, the triune God himself, the diversity of, of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are a unity. We see in Christ this restoration of creation where the diversity of creation becomes a unity through grace. So I was driving back from uh, Colorado a couple of weeks ago with the floodwaters changing the path a little bit. We ended up having to drive through the middle of Kansas and uh, not something I'd ordinarily choose to do, but but I did discover some interesting facts along the way. Did you know that they're taking missile silos 
decommissioned missile silos in Kansas and turning them into luxury survival condos. For about three to five million dollars, you could purchase your own luxury suite inside a missile silo in Kansas. I've never wanted to have three to five million dollars more in my life, even though I know Lori would would end that life before she ever allowed me to buy a survival condo. But there's something about me as a child of the 80s, growing up in the Cold War and the threat of nuclear apocalypse at every turn, that loves the idea of having a survival pad that would also be a luxury condo. It seems like uh, the best of both worlds. But why in the world, why in the world would you spend money on something like that? Well, because you want to survive the apocalypse. You want to survive the end of the world. Like, judgment is coming, but you don't want to be caught out in it. You need a place to hide. You need a place to ride it out. Preferably one that has exercise bicycles and solar panels and and lots of uh, food that you'd never want to eat if it wasn't the end of the world. In a nutshell, I think what Paul is saying is that for the self-righteous, we treat the law of God, we treat the, the, the Christian tradition, we treat all of this truth as our own sort of luxury survival condo. This is all really good stuff. This is rich and rewarding stuff to have so that you can survive the judgment to come, so that you can have a place to go. You can have a place that won't be affected by the wrath that is to come. God will know that when he sends the angel of death through the world to call all of the evil people out there, he shouldn't send it here. He shouldn't send it here because we don't deserve that judgment. I always wonder if people who spend three to five million dollars on luxury survival condos uh, would have benefited from a better liberal arts education. If they had read Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Mask of the Red Death, they would know that whenever rich people huddle together to get away from what is destroying the world, the disease comes and they bring it with them and it destroys them. There's a similar lesson for us as well. Like none of our hiding places will work. None of our hiding places will let us escape the judgment that is to come. There's only one way of escape, and it involves not hiding anymore. The gospel calls to us to come out of hiding. Don't disappear in your sin, but also don't try to conceal yourself in a show of self-righteousness. Be honest about your sin. Be honest about your shortcomings, and don't hide anymore. The power of grace is the power to stand on the day of judgment, to stand unconcealed, unhidden, and survive, not because you found the right place to shelter, but to survive because you are in Christ, that you are standing in Christ. When you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about surviving the end of the world. Because when you are in Christ, you've been promised world without end. A new life that is to come. A life without concealment, a life without shame, a life without sin. is only possible in Christ. The gospel is not ultimately about escaping final judgments. The gospel is ultimately about living in the world beyond all judgment. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.